This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, demonstrators calling for the police to be defunded were arrested and escorted out of Hamilton City Hall by police on Wednesday night. Unfortunately, is the cause getting lost in the sauce here, especially after dropping off a coffin on the mayor's lawn? The judicial inquiry into the Red Hill Valley Parkway could end up costing more than the $7 million budgeted by the city. How come? And Donald Trump is not going out without a fight, hoping to pardon everyone, including his family. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I am bent over with my pants down, waiting for my COVID-19 vaccine. After the grandparents and our heroic frontline workers, of course. However, I understand my cute little bottom may be cold before I get one. That's unfortunate. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Well, that was a little cheeky, wasn't it? He seems to be getting a little political. Maybe he wants my job. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Another big one planned for you today. I want to play a clip first here. This is Shona Thompson and her report. 18 defund Hamilton police protesters have been arrested and charged with trespassing for staging a demonstration at City Hall after hours. About the time the lobby was closing for the day, police were called about a group of six who refused to leave. Soon after, more protesters arrived and the number grew to 19. They were demanding a meeting with the mayor. The city says it offered a meeting with Mayor Eisenberger and the city manager and representatives of the group. However, the protesters refused, saying it was an all-or-nothing scenario. About 8.30 last night, the group was escorted out by police and charges were laid. The fine for trespassing is $65. Shona Thompson, 900 CHML News. All right, let's bring in Larry DeAnne, former mayor of city of Hamilton. Larry, I hope you're doing well. Thanks for taking the time. No problems, uh, Scott. My pleasure. So what are your thoughts? Uh, let's talk about, uh, we'll go through this in chronological order. What are your, th- what are your thoughts about what happened last night and, and the storming of the building and, and that sort of thing and the, the request to meet with the mayor? Uh, and he did uh, agree to meet with representatives, uh, obviously not the whole group. Um, your thoughts on what's going down here? Well, you know, it's, it's spectacle. Uh, I suspect that the group wants more than a meeting. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, um, what are they going to say to the mayor that they already haven't said and stated publicly in terms of, uh, you know, their 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 bifurcated uh, request on the one side to defund the police. In fact, some of them want to abolish the police, not just defund. Um, they want to defund, disarm, uh, disband, and and abolish according to their chant. Uh, and on the other side, they want increased uh, funds for social services and. Uh, and housing issues. Um, so they've made their point very, very clear. Uh, and if the mayor um, has offered them a meeting with himself and the city manager, 
uh, and representatives from the group. The group should take that opportunity if they have additional things to, to state. However, uh, the mayor by himself cannot do anything without council support anyway. So really what the <clears throat> group should be doing is, uh, is making a presentation before council. And anybody can do that. And that's public. The press is there. They can bring as many members as they want uh, to that formal meeting, make their presentation, uh, be heard, be asked questions, answer questions, do whatever they want within the time that they might be allotted. Uh, and uh, that's all public. But they don't want to do that. They just want to create the headlines. And I suspect uh, what's pushing them more than the affordability issue, because Hamilton, according to the press release the mayor just put out, over the last six years invested $716 million, uh, not all of it Hamilton money, some of it uh, federal uh, funds and so on, but $616 million, let me get this correct, in funding towards reducing the impact of poverty in Hamilton through investment in safe, affordable housing. That's a chunk of change. <clears throat> doesn't solve all the problems, but that's a good chunk of change. I suspect what this group really wants is to abolish the police. And that's the unfortunate part that I think turns everybody off. That's uh, their tactics. You know, you, I think you just hit the nail on the head right there, and that was going to be my next point. You know, uh, we, we've certainly had them on the air, and, and issues that are being brought up are, are, are extremely valid, and I think have, a, have the support of a lot of people. Uh, but that's not the issue. Uh, it, it's usually met with some sort of extreme demand or some extreme uh, situation, which, you know, just isn't thought out and, and, and just uh, requires certainly more than, than a demonstration. So uh, do you think that the message gets lost in the sauce once we start to getting to this point of well, storming you know, City Hall? Well, it's, it's what turns people off. Uh, I mean, when Barack Obama, uh, former president, that everybody respect, uh, I think I think whether you supported him at the ballot box or not, you seem as as a voice of, of you know, that, that, that needs to be listened to. Uh, when he says that, that the defund the police mantra turns people off, then the, those who are mouthing not only defund but dis- disband and abolish the police, they've got to heed that message. If they want to accomplish some reform, which I think most people would be in favor of, to mm-hmm. make sure that everything is done appropriately and everybody feels safe, if you want to accomplish that, then don't use these thuggish tactics that bring coffins to people's homes, that bring, uh, you know, um, all kinds of histrionics uh, to the front of City Hall that made it look like a a war zone for a period of time, that forces the police to escort them out as they obviously had to do last night and and charge them with trespassing. You know, the fine is only 65 bucks. I mean, that is nothing, really. But, But nevertheless, the message is... You know, adhere to common sense civility while delivering your message. I think people would be much more open to that. Okay, I'm going to play a devil's advocate here, Larry. Uh, we do that. I'm speaking for them, of course, and I yep. shouldn't be. We do that, and no one listens. This is the only way to get attention. Well, I, but but you know what? I, if if you know that was ever thus, that that not everybody's hundred um, um, percent voices heard a hundred percent of the time. But the city, of all cities in, in this country, I think Hamilton adheres to social justice principles, yeah. um, you know, pretty well. Not perfectly. Do they make mistakes? Absolutely. Could more be done? Absolutely. 
But are they totally ignoring those messages? I don't think that's the case at all. I think a case can be made that, in fact, they're, they're listening to those messages in an appropriate way. But, but that's the political system, isn't it? If you don't think that, that your message is being heard, then look at how you're delivering that message, first of all. And then if it's a political game that you want to play, you can do so at the ballot box. You can run. You can, you can have people representing you. You can petition counselors. Uh, and there are allies of this group on that council. I know that. In fact, I would say that a lot of people, uh, you know, support the message of trying to assist uh, needy people uh, as much as possible uh, and even beyond. But it's the tactics that are turning some people off. And certainly the citizens that I talk to are not impressed with a defund or abolish the police uh, message. And, you know, when you bring coffins to the mayor's house with an implied, even if subtle, threat around harm, nobody can support that. And and the unfortunate thing here is, as you mentioned, uh, many people, and I would say even the majority of people, support uh, helping more and, and doing more for uh, ver- these various causes because what happens is there's so many groups that get involved in this from the extremes that the message becomes cloudy. The message becomes diluted and, and, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, becomes something that is just completely unsolvable. Well, and, and, you know, who, who doesn't support helping the needy, the, the needy that need help, the homeless? Um, you know, who doesn't want to see affordable housing being instituted? Uh, every, you know, that, that message is, is a good message. Um, and, and I think people just have to find a way of doing that that is both affordable, doable, and, and um, uh, appropriate for, you know, whatever the circumstances in a community are. But when you start blaming uh, individuals for not for doing nothing, for not listening, for not being available, uh, for for uh, being heavy-handed, um, uh, for uh, the abuses uh, of government, um, you know, trotting over the little people's uh, uh, rights, you've you've gone too far because the reality doesn't match the rhetoric, and and then you got to question. The motive, and the motive here is, I think, some hatred for the police, um, not just reform. But people talk about abolishing. Uh, you know, there's an animus there that needs to be examined uh, as to whether it is legitimate or not, uh, and and then do the right thing. You know, you you can't abolish the police. Uh, you know, the the, the uh, you know, I said to someone on 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 Twitter yesterday because they said, you know, of affordable housing is is a right um uh, policing is not and i said well affordable housing is a right and policing is a necessity uh, and you you need both you can't you know uh, have unsafe communities uh with with everybody in homes that whose neighborhoods may be not safe so you, you got to balance those two but i think there's an animus against the police there and they're trying to use the cover of a social justice issue, which people yeah. uh, respect, to try to get uh, at what they really want, which is to downgrade um, and and uh, and in fact abolish if they if they possibly could, they would do that. Uh, police services in this community, and that would be unfortunate.
Larry, I can't let you go without asking you uh, about the Red Hill, uh, the Red Hill Valley Parkway, and what, what's happening with the costs here as th- this goes through uh, litigation and such. Uh, your thoughts that now this well, is going to cost more crazy. than seven million bucks. Well, yeah, and we've chatted about this before, and I, I said when this started that that uh, uh, you know council embarked on the most expensive uh, possible process. Uh, to to get to the bottom of what uh, really should uh, not be as expensive or as long as it seems to be, uh, you know, and uh, they, they just, it was just reported that they probably pierce the seven million dollars um, that they've set aside uh, for this inquiry to conclude. Uh, I, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. Um, it seems like a make-work project for lawyers, quite frankly. They must be chopping their, their lips, um, uh, you know, at, at the largesse that the city's able to provide. And at the end of the day, what are they going to be able to do? What mm-hmm. solution? What, what, what will they say um, to do to make things better that they haven't already done? They've repaved the whole darn road. They've, the solution came before the discovery of the problem. And and uh, and by the way, there are other lawyers, a whole avalanche of other lawyers, in the sidelines waiting for this class action suit uh, to, uh, to 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 take full full hold um, that may cost the city even more money. And and this is not to denigrate in the least the memory of those whose lives have been lost. But don't and, those people, Larry, deserve to have the answers to those questions? Well, but they, yes, absolutely, and, and I think council could have found a way, an independent way of getting at these answers without the most expensive way of doing it, which is this, this public inquiry. Yes, those answers could have been gotten and, and thoroughly and fully and transparently uh, and, and far less expensively. I would sooner put some of that $7 million towards towards some costs of, uh, if indeed there's fault here, towards some costs of uh, 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 the victims that, that there may be, rather than, you know, the, the lawyers that, that are, are engaged in this pro- very expensive and protracted process. All right, Larry Deany is with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, talking about all things Hamilton. It is 1227. Larry, thank you for the time. We hope you're doing well, and, uh, and uh, have yourself a great weekend. Thank you, Scott. All the best. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring in Dr. Michael Warner. He's the head of ICU at Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto. A couple of significant situations here as uh, we uh, hit the 200 uh, uh, 200 person mark in ICUs uh, across the province. And Dr. Michael Warner is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, before we get started here, take us uh, what it's take us uh, behind the scenes. What's it like for you and your staff in the ICU at this time? Give us a bit of an example of what you're experiencing. So you know what, Scott, my, my hospital is actually one of the least affected hospitals in the GTA with COVID nineteen. Uh, there's actually only one patient in our ICU with COVID nineteen. At our peak, we had ten uh, back in wave one, and that's you know on a, a denominator of about 15 to 17 beds. 
Uh, we do a lot of outreach into the community. We have seven pop-up centers in East Toronto, and we do outreach into schools and long-term care, which I think has helped to keep our case numbers down. But my colleagues at other hospitals, you know, Scarborough, which is just a few kilometers away, over 40% of the patients in their ICUs have COVID-19. In, in Peel region, uh, they've got a, a big uh, COVID load. Actually, in Halton, adjoining Hamilton, 24% of the ICU patients in Halton have COVID and about 24% in York region. So it really depends on where you are. Our specific hospital is not that affected, but we, uh, we remember uh, what it was like uh, back in wave one when uh, there was much more COVID activity locally. Are these hospitals yours or those that are not hit as hard? Are they prepared to take overflow if needed? That happens on a daily basis. So uh, we will receive calls to take patients from other hospitals for ICU to ICU transfers. And what's interesting, Scott, is, is now it's not just ICU patients, but regular ward patients. So you could have someone you know, sitting in a, in a ward bed with pneumonia who is removed from that bed and taken to another hospital because hospital A is overflowing and hospital B has beds. And that's something that we hadn't done before for typical ward patients, but it is happening now. And it's for good reason, because we want to make sure that the hospitals that are overrun with COVID don't have to limit access to non-COVID-related care for their local residents. But it is disruptive to patients to have to be moved you know, for no specific medical reason, but because of capacity issues. Uh, so uh, what about other procedures? Is it to the point where this is affecting other procedures uh, with the number hitting 200 in ICU? I mean, the 200 number is a number that the modelers used on November 26 to really kind of emphasize to the public that's where things could start getting really hectic. And we were at 203 today, and we were expected to be around this number about five days from now. But it really depends on the local situation. So hospitals where there's much more COVID activity actually had to transiently cancel surgeries even before we reached 150 as a province overall. Then there are hospitals that are completely wide open and, and remain wide open. Back in wave one, what the government did is they shut down all elective surgeries across the province and limited access to diagnostic tests like CTs and MRIs across the board. I don't foresee that happening again. But again, we have to make sure that access to non-COVID-related care is equitable. So, uh, you know, if, uh, if someone in Burlington, you know, if Joe Brandt is overflowing or Hamilton Science is overflowing, we want to make sure the residents in those areas still have access to uh, care for non-COVID reasons. So obviously the most severe hospital issues are in those, still in those concentrated hotspots. Yes. So the, it, it, is, it is heterogeneous. Uh, you know, in your kind of listening area, you know, or around your listening area, Kitchener-Waterloo is definitely seeing an uptick in cases. Uh, Hamilton is, is not so bad. There's actually, you know, there's lots of ICU beds in Hamilton because it is a regional center, uh, mm-hmm. similar to London. Uh, but Halton region, you know, the Oakville and Burlington hospitals, they have actually more COVID ICU patients on a percentage basis than Toronto. Uh, Toronto is about 18% of our ICU patients have COVID in Halton. It's, it's 24%. Yet Toronto is in lockdown and, and uh, Halton region, and I believe Hamilton are in the red or control zone. So we'll see whether uh, the government makes decisions to increase restrictions in areas that are starting to have more limited uh, healthcare capacity. Your thoughts on where we will be or what can happen, say, between now and the holiday, now and Christmas? So, I mean, we're, we're holding around 1,700, 1,800 cases per day, and that, that could increase. I think it's too early to know whether the lockdown restrictions in Peel and Toronto will be efficacious in terms of reducing case numbers. But even at case numbers this high, we will continue to see an increase in hospitalizations, increase in ICU admissions, and unfortunately, con- there will continue to be deaths. 
I don't foresee you know, the, the hospital situation actually improving until well into the new year, so I think it will get worse before it gets better. It just depends on how bad it gets. You know, fortunately, the critical care system in Ontario works well as a system. Uh, we all know each other. We have good information systems. We transport patients across hospitals quite commonly, and uh, so the care should be seamless, and we should be able to provide ICU care to everyone who needs it, but the healthcare worker, him or herself, is under a lot of stress, and, and I think burnout is an issue for healthcare workers, uh, which is an important consideration as well. Uh, we saw Toronto's numbers dipping a bit today. That's not the first time that's happened. Are we seeing them? Are we starting to see these restrictions pan out for them? You know, I think it's really hard to know. Most people look at the seven-day average as being more informative than a day-to-day number uh, change. I think what's, you know, unfortunate is that, you know, Toronto Public Health is still so overwhelmed, despite their best efforts, that they're not doing contact tracing outside of congregate settings. So we're not really doing what we need to do to follow up on the cases that become positive. And as you may have heard, we've started to do some surveillance testing at schools, Thorncliffe Park Elementary, which is in my catchment area, and that project was done by my hospital, that identified you know, 4% of the students tested, uh, or the people tested, rather, were positive for COVID-19. These are people who had never been tested before because they didn't have symptoms. So I think that we actually don't know how much COVID is around, but I think there's much more than we think. Uh, obviously, uh, Toronto and Peel in hot spot, or rather in lockdown, and pretty much from uh, well the whole Greater Toronto Hamilton area in a red zone. How concerned are you that uh, the numbers that we're seeing in Toronto and Peel will overflow to those other areas in the red zone already? Well, I think people are leaking across borders. So, I mean, if you can't sh- if you can't shop at Yorkdale, but you can shop at Vaughan Mills, or I guess maybe for your listeners, Lime Ridge Mall. And people will do that even though they shouldn't. Uh, You're supposed to follow the public health advice that's for your specific jurisdiction. And going around those rules, because, of course, people have the freedom to be mobile, is not in the spirit of the public health restriction. So the government can only do so much, and people have to take personal responsibility. Uh, COVID doesn't know the difference. It doesn't know that you feel the need to go shopping or get a haircut or go to the gym in a region that has less restrictions than your own. Uh, COVID will travel with you. So I think people need to buckle down and follow the public health restrictions, and we also need the government to continue to emphasize clear and transparent communication uh, so that people know what is expected of them. Uh, Your thoughts on the information we're hearing in regard to vaccines, obviously the UK, uh, the first to be able to administer this. Uh, It looks like approval will come sometime between now and Christmas in the rest of the advanced world. Uh, It looks here that we have a bit of a distribution and certainly a a procurement issue. Uh, What are your thoughts on where we are and where we could be? Vaccines, I think it's exciting. So the hardest part about creating a vaccine is creating a vaccine, and we have a number of candidates uh, for which there's been you know, some press releases and some early data showing that they're safe and effective. The Pfizer, which has to be kept at minus 70, and the Moderna, which is minus 20, are the most likely vaccine candidates to be available in Canada. There was a federal press conference that is probably still ongoing. I was just listening to. Mm-hmm. And I think there, you know, there are a number of challenges. So the cold chain, which is that supply chain of ultra-cold or you know, freezer temperature vaccines that need to move you know, across provinces, within provinces, uh, internationally, etc., that needs to be worked out. And I think the federal government has procured um, some freezers, but uh, they're not yet delivered or in place, so that needs to be figured out. We also need an information system. I mean, my kids and even me, we use these yellow vaccination cards to keep track of, uh, of our vaccines, and we need a better system because most of these vaccines will require two shots, and they have to be given a specific time frame. 
and we need a computer system to make sure that people get shots at the right time. Those are the people who mm-hmm. want the shot. Uh, and then, you know, that just leading into that next question, like how do we make sure that people are, feel comfortable that the vaccine is safe and effective? Some people will never get a vaccine, that's their choice, but those people who are on the fence, especially with something that's new or novel, we need to make sure that they have the appropriate information to make informed decisions about whether it's safe and effective for them. So that's something we can start working on now from a public relations perspective, even as we wait for vaccines to reach our borders. Are you concerned about the timeline and when we will actually get it? I don't think that there'll be vaccines available to the entire population of Canada that who wants to be vaccinated until the end of 2021. We also have to keep in mind that you know, if the, the experts say that we need 70% of the population vaccinated for herd immunity. These vaccines haven't been tested in anyone under 18. So if we take the 7 million people out of the population who are under 18, that means we need to vaccinate 26.6 million people, which is 86% of the entire Canadian population that reached that 70%. Logistically, that's extremely challenging. And then because of vaccine hesitancy, uh, that may not actually be realistic. So there are lots of things that are in play. My hope is that the vaccines will be available and that the people who want them uh, have the opportunity to receive them in a timely manner. So is it a disadvantage for Canadians if the rollout is a bit slower uh, than the rest of the world? I mean, we're certainly it certainly appears like that now. We won't know until we're actually there, I guess. Um, but, you know, are we will that delay uh, affect Canadians much? It will. I mean, there's a queuing issue. You want to be at the front of the queue with this, and we will not be at the front of the queue because we don't have domestic mass production of these types of novel vaccines available. So we have to wait in line. And our position in the queue, I guess, is determined by powers well above me, but uh, the federal government will let us know when it's our turn. And then once, w- within Can- once they're available in Canada, they won't be available to everybody at once. And what I heard today is that each province and territory will decide you know, what rules there are to determine who gets the vaccine first, second, third, etc. Uh, and that, there could be some tension because the rules could be different across jurisdictions, you know, in one province versus another, and that will be up to public debate. So if you're asking me, would, would I rather a vaccine sooner? Absolutely. That would put Canada in a better position, but uh, I don't think we have a strong negotiating position uh, with this because everyone in the world is looking for the same thing. Uh, you were talking about who gets it and what we're hearing so far, and, and I guess it seems obvious, long-term care, those that are more, most vulnerable, frontline workers. But then can you see it working down by age? I've, he- I've, he- I've heard that suggested. Yeah, it's, it's tricky because age doesn't necessarily confer risk, you know, on an individual basis, right. maybe on a population basis it does, but, you know, I have 90-year-olds who are in better shape than some 50-year-olds we treat in the ICU. So mm. it's really the comorbidities, you know, how many illnesses a person has, but we don't have a good way of keeping track of whether someone has two comorbidities or 10 or none. And so I think age is probably going to be one of the metrics they use because it's easiest to measure and is, it cannot be debated. Uh, but I guess we'll have to see what decision is made. But there's going to be no perfect system that is uh, you know, 100% validated for how this is distributed. But we're probably going to have to accept uh, some degree of uh, I- imperfection as we roll this out. 
Uh, talk a little bit more about the safety of this vaccination once it is released. Uh, many have said, you know, we don't want it. You know, we don't want it until uh, it's proven to be actually, you know, completely safe. That being said, from what I understand, all of the uh, health authorities uh, who are involved in this around the world are pretty much getting the information at roughly the same time in stages. So uh, I guess my first question is, are, are you confident about the safety of this? And will that delay this in any way? I, I'm hearing roughly that this that Health Canada will be approving this before Christmas, like most of the other uh, nations are. Yeah, so Health Canada has a rigorous pro- process to approve really any, anything that is for Canadians, including vaccines. And I trust them to do that, uh, go through that process with the same rigor they would with anything else. Do we have long-term data three years from now about whether there are any complications related to this vaccine? We simply do not. But uh, that's the situation we're in. I'm not a vaccine expert, but most complications, at least life-threatening ones from vaccines, would be seen you know, in the first hours, days, or weeks from this vaccine being administered. We've had volunteers who have received this vaccine you know, many months ago. So we don't have perfect information, but if Health Canada approves this, then I would consider the vaccine safe and effective and much less risky than uh, subjecting yourself to the risk of COVID um, for sure. So, you know, I'm not in the business of convincing people to accept vaccines. I think everyone has to make their own choice based on the information available. But I think that people should make sure they get the information from reliable sources. And if the vaccine is available in Canada, then I would consider it both safe and effective. Uh, I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts in the United States. Uh, speaking of numbers, I think uh, today a, a new record with over 3,100 uh, 3, deaths in the last uh, 24 hours. We've heard that uh, they're uh, rolling out the vaccines as quickly as possible uh, before Christmas and, and thereafter. Uh, how, how will that impact uh, their situation once they because they're talking about mass uh, vaccinations and, and boom getting this all out uh, w- with the first attack quite large a lot larger than what it will be uh, for example for countries like Canada uh, how much of an effect will that have on them getting control of this disease well their situation couldn't be much worse than it is now it is completely yeah. out of control I mean they've 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 essentially let it get out of control, and be, unfortunately, politics has contributed to that. So anything that can be done to help will help their situation because it will get worse. I think that you know, the United States has the, the money and the machinery and the resources to roll this out probably more quickly than, than other countries, but they have you know, well over 300 million people. And just to bring it back to vaccine hesitancy, you know, vaccine hesitancy, hesitancy varies with GDP. And there's no higher GDP country than the United States. Uh, maybe, they're, well, they're close to the top anyway. So I think that that will also be a significant challenge in the United States because you do need to have a significant number of people vaccinated for it to have the kind of countrywide impact that, that I think you're speaking to. And, uh, and time will tell, but I think that vaccinations will help. But there's going to be a period of time in every country where there are a group of people who are vaccinated and a group of people who aren't, which means that we can't necessarily remove public health restrictions just you know, once vaccines start getting going or, or even are distributed to many people. So we're going to be in this state of having to adhere to public health restrictions for many months to come, um, unfortunately. 
Uh, so it's interesting you say once the vaccination does arrive, it's not a case of uh, how long it will take. It's it's attitudes towards that. We you know it, we touched a little bit on the anti-vaxxing uh, scenario. Do you think with now having this pandemic in our generation? It will make people, make the anti-vaxxers look at this again. I mean, many have said that, uh, you know, the whole anti-vax movement uh, started when we saw a decline in these diseases that we saw like 100 years ago. And if you ask our grandparents and our great-grandparents, it'd be, yeah, get the vaccination. Now, of course, uh, or up until COVID-19, we haven't seen that. Now we have been presented with a plague, for lack of a better word. Do you think this will uh, refocus people's attention on getting vaccinated? You know, Scott, I don't pretend to understand what goes through people's minds when they make a hmm. personal decision about a vaccine. That's really not my place. I, I, I'm really speaking to people who are more likely to be on the fence. Uh, if you feel that vaccines aren't safer for you, I'm not going to be able to convince you otherwise. But I think you know, maybe a different way to answer your question is that, you know, in 2020, maybe the way we view our neighbor and the person down the street and the person we don't even know is a little bit different than, than 100 years ago. You know, we need to have that community feel that I'm going to do something to myself or for myself that's going to help everybody. Uh, and if we all had that same attitude, we might be further ahead faster, including having the economy reopen. Um, that's just kind of a philosophical way of thinking of it. You know, we become very focused on our own world and our own rights and et cetera. But uh, there is something we said for doing something for, this, for the betterment of other people, which I think, I think vaccination would fall into that category to some degree. Here's hoping uh, post-COVID-19 we are more united. Uh, Dr. Michael Warner, well said, head of ICU at Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto. Uh, doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Please pass along uh, to your colleagues uh, in the and staff at the hospital. Thank you so much for all the hard work they're doing to keep everybody safe. We all do appreciate it. Take care. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Um, uh, dueling press conferences, uh, uh, press conferences today. It's been a busy day. Uh, both the federal government task force on the uh, administration of this vaccination. We carried that first. And then uh, Premier Doug Ford's uh, daily news conference was delayed a half an hour as a result. He no doubt listening to that as well. Uh, Major General uh, Danny Fortin, uh, Vice President of Logistics and operations for the federal government's rollout plan uh, said that there'll be 14 points of distribution in place by uh, December. Of course, uh, the first shipment of these vaccines, again, no dates, sometime in the first quarter, uh, January to March. Uh, and he said that we don't need the dates. Uh, the military prepares on assumptions. So, again, I'm not sure that's language that uh, that people want to hear. Uh, the premier spoke afterwards saying we still don't know when we're going to get these. We still don't know what it is, the type of vaccine, which is obviously a logistics scenario as well, and how much of this uh, that we're going to uh, to need and, and, uh, or how much uh, we're going to get at one time so we can plan who to give it to. So, uh, again, lots of questions. Uh, Questions, more questions than answered. Uh, also, the table was asked about Premier Jason Kenney saying that his province would uh, get the vaccine by January 4th, perhaps being overly optimistic and taking the government at the early part of their projection as opposed to the latter part, which would be uh, March. Other interesting things to come out over the course of the afternoon. Remember, Quebec was talking about its, uh, its uh, moral, uh, I forget what he called it, the moral uh, agreement 
uh, I don't think that's the right term, but uh, that uh, perhaps opening things up for the holidays, uh, the Premier of Quebec has said that that is not going to happen. There will be no gatherings uh, for the holidays in the red zone. So they are reversing uh, that decision. Uh, and Ontario Premier saying uh, we will be ready and uh, and the logistics will be in place for the delivery. But again, still waiting for when, what and how much in order to uh, alleviate the fears and anxiety in a lot of Canadians. All right, that's enough of that. Let's go down uh, south of the border as uh, the the President Donald Trump finishes up his term and making room for uh, Joe Biden again, going out with a... Uh, with a fury, that's for sure, uh, talking about pardoning family members uh, as well, uh, still questioning the election and, and, and I guess, pointing fingers at uh, officials who are very upset, saying, no, we did a yeoman's job here, and, and you're making us look bad for no reason, and it's become dangerous as people are getting threats. So to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Graham Dodds, uh, Concordia University Professor and Associate Chair of political science and is with us now uh graham thanks for your time i hope you're doing well doing well yeah how about you i'm doing fine you know the best we can we're all just uh, doing our thing here and battening down the hatches your thoughts on where we are in the united states and again uh, we'll we'll forget the chatter about covid19 for a sec although obviously they're in uh extremely dire shape right now uh, hitting their own records for deaths and such uh president trump doesn't seem to be addressing any of that instead questioning the election your thoughts of where we are yeah, look, this is an interesting time. America has this weird system where there's a long transition, this long gap between the election and when the new team takes power. Very different than here in Canada, right? So it's often a time, uh, a sort of odd time, but uh, where Donald Trump is involved, it's uh, it's especially odd, right? Uh, usually at this time, a, a, an outgoing president would be engaged with the transition for the new team. Uh, he would be trying to cement his legacy in some fashion. And instead, we have uh, the outgoing president still uh, contesting the election results all these weeks later. It, it is highly unusual, to say the least. And uh, yesterday delivers a 45-minute uh, uh, speech, I guess, in the in the press room, but nobody there. This is only going on social media. We're going to play a little clip of what went down. Thank you. This may be the most important speech I've ever made. I want to provide an update on our ongoing efforts to expose the tremendous voter fraud and irregularities which took place during the ridiculously long November 3rd elections. We used to have what was called Election Day. Now we have Election Days, weeks and months, and lots of bad things happened during this ridiculous period of time, especially when you have to prove almost nothing to exercise our greatest privilege, the right to vote. As President, I have no higher duty than to defend the laws and the Constitution of the United States. That is why I am determined to protect our election system, which is now under coordinated assault and siege. For months leading up to the presidential election, we were warned that we should not declare a premature victory. We were told repeatedly that it would take weeks, if not months, to determine the winner, to count the absentee ballots, and to verify the results. My opponent was told to stay away from the election. Don't campaign. We don't need you. We've got it. This election is done. In fact, they were acting like they already knew what the outcome was going to be. They had it covered. 
And perhaps they did. Very sadly. All right, that's enough. Uh, Dr. Graham Dodds with us from Concordia University. Um, You know, he said that the president said this is his most important press conference, yet none of the media was there. A lot in what happened there that would raise an eyebrow, uh, even with this president who, um, you know, we become used to this thinking it's normal. It's not. This kind of stuff is crazy. It didn't used to happen. It shouldn't happen. Hopefully pretty soon it will not happen anymore, but it did happen yesterday. Um, it's just bizarre. I mean, trying to look for a coherent logic in much of what this guy does is a fool's errand, because often what you see is what you get. It is just crazy. I had thought, uh, being generous, that if there were a plan behind all this, it was to sow enough doubt that Trump could prevail upon certain Republican states to throw out the votes and to uh, cast the electoral vote for him. And, you know, maybe that was the plan, but uh, it's been clear for a while that uh, even that sort of Hail Mary pass was not going to connect. Uh, But he's still beating this dead drum. So at this point, I don't know to what effect. I don't know in his own mind why he's doing this. And we are finally starting to see um, even loyal Republicans say enough is enough, including uh, not least of all Attorney General uh, William Barr, who frankly has been Trump's lackey uh, for a long time now. The Attorney General is supposed to be America's lawyer. Uh, 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 Mr. Barr has been Trump's lawyer, another Rudy Giuliani, but even he is saying enough is enough. Uh, I don't know what more that could be said. Uh, that was my next point. What is the significance of the Attorney General Barr saying that and Donald Trump's reaction to it? Uh, well, Trump's reaction is, is uh, predictable. I mean, uh, he's, he's, he's not happy with it. Uh, uh, he's, it's sort of undermining excuse me, this crazy narrative. Um, uh, but from Barr's point of view, I don't know. I mean, look, Barr was in retirement. He was coaxed out of retirement to try to uh, uh, do things to advance a particular uh, theory of the constitutional presidency that, that is one of his, uh, it's near and dear to his heart, and he's, he's done a good job at advancing that theory. Um, I don't know if he's trying to salvage some respectability as he heads back to retirement or what. Um, we are hearing more of this from other Republicans, uh, from even prominent members of the religious right and such that it's, that it's time to move on from all of this. Uh, is this about all, is this all about raising money? Apparently he's raised millions of dollars since after the election and up until now when normally these, these wickets would all be closed by now, but he, he still seems to be breaking in money from people. Uh, where Donald Trump is concerned to say that money is important, I think, is a, an uncontroversial claim. So that might be part of what's going on. I read just today that Mike Pence has finally stopped having his name uh, attacked onto these fundraising efforts. Uh, is Trump just trying to line his coffers a little bit in the next 36 or however many days he has left? I don't know. Here again, I, I, I'm not sure it makes sense to look for a, a basic logic behind all this because I fear there might not be any at all. At what point, uh, and I guess we're seeing that now, is this bad for the Republican Party? I know they were keeping a lot of this going because there are uh, Senate seats in Georgia and such and perhaps wanted to carry this momentum through to uh, January. But at what point is this damaging to the Republican Party? And I would say that line has already been crossed. But at what point do they cut bait here? 
Yeah, Trump being damaging to the Republican Party, I think that goes back about five years ago. Uh, but mm. uh, currently, yes. Uh, look, the Republican Party has become nothing more than the party of Donald Trump. This time around, they did not even have an official platform to run on. They just said the same thing from four years ago, as if they had no policy because their policy is whatever the president says it is. And to my mind, one of the bigger stories out of the last four years is how very few Republicans were ever willing to say anything at all critical about this guy. You can count them on one hand and have a few fingers left over, chief among them the late John McCain. Uh, we're starting to see a little bit of that now. I mentioned earlier uh, his attorney general, um, some state-level officials, not least of which uh, Republican electoral officials in the state of Georgia, saying there's nothing to see here. There was no fraud. Trump lost. Let's move on. Stop pretending this happened. It's dangerous. People are going to get hurt and killed. Please grow up. Accept reality. Dust yourself off. Lick your wounds. Get ready for the next round. And as you suggest, it, it might hurt Republicans in these two key Senate races in Georgia that are going to occur next month that will determine which party controls the Senate and therefore how easy it would be for President-elect uh, Biden to do what he wants to do. So yes, Republicans uh, could and uh, should see this for what it is and act accordingly. And we're seeing some of that, but still not an awful lot of it. There are a lot of senators who even today will not congratulate Biden on his win because they're not willing to accept it. Uh, at what point does this start hurting the cause for those seats in Georgia coming up in January? I mean, we have the uh, head of elections in Georgia saying someone is going to get killed, that Donald Trump's got to stop this now that, uh, I guess, election officials, election workers are getting threats and such. Uh, but when even you have officials in Georgia where this seat is so important saying, you gotta, you got to dial this back, someone's going to get killed, how does that resonate in Georgia? It's hard to say. Look, Georgia uh, used to be a very Republican state this time around. It surprisingly, I think, for everybody, uh, went for uh, Joe Biden. Um, but these two Senate seats coming out of Georgia, again, will determine which party will control the Senate. So it's hugely important. Uh, most people would have thought the Republicans would have won both of those. But now um, some people are saying that Trump is trying to – he's cast so much doubt, at least among his, his believing base, about the the, the – fairness of the process that some Trump voters, some Republican voters may just stay home, which ironically would lead to the Democrats getting elected and giving uh, Joe Biden a freer hand, which would be, as I suggest, ironic. But um, it's just so hard to say what's going to happen. Usually these sort of uh, runoff elections attract a much smaller turnout, as you might imagine, and usually the people who do turn out are people who are heavily invested in it. So, you know, liberal Democrats, conservative Republicans. I honestly don't know which way it's going to go, but uh, these are hugely important contests. Uh, lots of chatter about uh, how Donald Trump is going to exit the White House. We've uh, one of those angles talking about pardons and, and who he is going to pardon. Now there's an investigation into uh, bribery for a pardon that people are paying money for these. What are your thoughts on that? Is this something that can be traced? Is this something that can be investigated thoroughly? Yeah, here again, part of I think what's going on is normal, uh, but part of it is not normal. It is usually the case at the end of a presidential term, especially after an election, especially when the president uh, is, is going to leave office and he's what they call a lame duck. At that time, it's often uh, the case that presidents will issue various pardons, and indeed the media often speculates on exactly who might get a pardon. So that's all par for the course. That's normal. But what is not normal is 
the one pardon he's so far issued uh, since the election for uh, his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, who twice lied to the FBI. Um, and then this report that uh, the Department of Justice is investigating a potential bribery scheme where people were offering to pay money in exchange for a presidential pardon. And then uh, just the other day, a uh, story that Trump um, is thinking about issuing preemptive pardons for his children, his son-in-law, and uh, maybe his personal lawyer, uh, Rudy Giuliani. Um, that would be rather unusual. Uh, the bribery scandal is certainly unusual. Uh, pardoning a national security advisor who twice lies to the FBI is unusual, but then pardoning your family preemptively for anything they may or may not have done, highly, highly unusual. And I think it's going to get even crazier from here. Uh, there's the big question of whether Trump will try to pardon himself and if people are going to uh, let him get away with that. Can you actually do a presumptive pardon before somebody's actually been charged or there's a guilty plea? Yeah, you can. Um, the presidential pardon power is one of the very few explicit and unlimited powers the president has. And uh, there is a history of this. You don't have to wait till someone has been charged, convicted, sentenced. Uh, you can issue it uh, beforehand. And indeed, the, the biggest pardon in many people's minds, uh, that of uh, uh, Gerald Ford for Richard Nixon was uh, issued for any crimes that Nixon may have committed, uh, saying, you know, it's sort of a, it's, it's a blank check, it's a get out of free card. It, it doesn't have to pertain to particular crimes that you've been uh, convicted of committing. So, um, yeah, on that ground, the, the president can do that. He, he can issue a pardon for anything that may or may not have happened, and uh, that would indemnify his children going forward. Uh, what is the purpose of this 46-minute speech that he gave? I mean, clearly, earlier in the week, he was ta or last week, he was uh, talking about conceding and, you know, or, or certainly alluding that Biden was taking over. And then he realized, no, that was too soft a stance. He was then going to, rather than concede, uh, simply say that the whole thing was rigged and so on and so forth. Does this, uh, does this uh, video on social media, does it have impact to anyone or is that just solely designed to his base? question and, and here again it, it's just so difficult to figure out what the heck is going on with something this bizarre unusual unprecedented and uh, the short answer is i just don't know uh, i suppose trump is uh, you know he always doubles down right when he does something crazy or unusual and he gets flack for it he doesn't back off he just keeps doing it and uh, i think this is yet another instance of that so it's in keeping with his personality such as it is um, I think he's trying to nurture this kind of grievance streak of contemporary conservatism, which feels that uh, even when they're winning, they are uh, losing, and unfairly so. And, you know, Trump often speaks that way of how the world is aligned against him. Everything is so unfair. Pity the poor billionaire president. Um, and I think this is an aspect of that. Uh, more instrumentally, maybe he's trying to gin up support among his base to uh, keep following the Trump circus after November in whatever capacity that's going to develop, whether Trump's going to have his own media channel or, or still try to be a kingmaker in the Republican Party. Um, but this sort of thing does sort of set him up for that kind of position. Uh, he, he really is his own worst enemy. He's created most of the problems that he's 
that have kicked him out of office. I mean, you can't continue, you can't win an election and continue to divide the people. Sooner or later, that catches up with you. Let's, uh, and I've only got a few seconds left. What about inauguration? Is he going to show up? Is he going to not even bother? I'm, I'm fearful if he does show up, he'll try to steal the show. Yeah, yeah, he's not used to not being in the spotlight, it is fair to say. Uh, but, you know, look, with the pandemic, it's going to be different this year. Even if there had been a normal candidate and a normal uh, sort of uh, transition, things would be very different uh, given the, the pandemic. So it's just so hard to say what it's going to look like. Uh, there have been presidents in the past who have not attended the inauguration of their successors uh, for various reasons. And it's just really hard for me to picture Donald Trump sitting serenely behind Joe Biden as Biden gets up there and starts to undo much that Trump has done. So I would not bank on Trump going to it. It'd be fascinating to see him uh, in the seats with all the other past presidents. Uh, no, I don't want to sit next to him. You sit next to him. <laughs> He's completely by himself on some other. It's going to be bizarre. Uh, we really do appreciate your time, Dr. Graham Dodds, Concordia University Professor of Associate Chair, Department of Political Science. Graham, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Of course. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.